0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories.
1: Hey, cardio nerds. My name is Medea Khan. I'm an internal medicine resident at Houston Methodist Hospital and a CardioNerds Academy Fellow in House Tausig. Welcome back to our seven-episode nuclear and complementary multimodality imaging series with Cleveland Clinic imaging expert, Dr. Wild Jaber, and future imager, Dr. Erica Hutt, as well as Brigham Imaging Fellow, Dr. Aldo Scannoni. Be sure to check out episode number 99, in which we discussed the evaluation of coronary ischemia. In this second part, we learn about the evaluation of coronary microvascular disease. Stay tuned for future episodes where we will cover myocardial viability testing, anomalous coronary anatomies, cardiac sarcoidosis, cardiac amyloidosis, and prosthetic valve infections. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Be sure to claim free CME credit using the link in the episode description. The speakers have no relevant disclosures, and there is no commercial or in-kind support for this activity. Now, if you recall from the last episode, Amit set the stage for the Cardio nerds version of The Odyssey. Two of our characters developed concerning chest pain, and we learned about non-invasive testing for coronary ischemia. The results of their stress tests are about to return as we dive into the microscopic world of coronary microvascular disease.
2: We just got the results back for the treadmill spec for our suitors. Let's first start with Antinuous. His spec revealed a large, reversible LED territory perfusion defect. He was taken to the local cath lab where coronary angiography, much to our surprise, only showed mild, non-obstructive coronary artery disease. And I have to say, as, as a future cath fellow, there's nothing more disappointing than fully expecting epicardial coronary stenosis that you can do something about and not finding it.
3: Hmm. So it sounds like maybe the SPECT uh, was false positive result. Hefe, when would you look beyond the epicardial horizon? I'm pretty sure this wasn't even known in the days of Odysseus, but we now know that epicardial coronary disease is just the tip of the iceberg, and beyond the surface, there's a vast network of pre arterioles, arterials, and capillaries, which may contribute to tissue malperfusion, either from structural or functional abnormalities. We tend to see this more in women. And of course, coronary angiography only sees the epicardial vessels. When do you look for microvascular disease, and how might nuclear cardiology help us in either treating, prognosticating or even diagnosing this disease?
4: So, wow, it took 3,000 years for the results to come back, but our lab is much faster. We deliver the results within an hour from the end of the scan. So just uh, when, when do you look for microvascular disease, you always look for microvascular disease. And I don't say that to be funny. Just uh, We face this problem in nuclear cardiology, maybe in stress echo the same way, or in MRI for years. We will have a patient like this, where they have a uh, coronary perfusion defect on uh, whatever scan you decide or wall motion of humanity or uh, perfusion defect by MRI. And then we send them to the cath lab, and they say, oh, they have nothing. You were wrong. So we call these all the time false positive stress tests. And if you, if you take them as false uh, positive stress tests, there was a, one of the attendings there. he worked here. Now he's retired. He used to call me all the time to harass me about the false positive stress test. So I used to tell him these are false negative cardiac cath. So, <laughs> So then. It's really we're dealing a lot with a false negative. Uh, I'm not saying nuclear technology is perfect, mm-hmm. but false negative cardiac cath is probably a bigger issue than false positive uh, stress test. Now, in the in the era of PET, with some limitations that we can discuss if you want, you have that uh, the data on mm-hmm. uh, microvascular disease readily at your fingers. So even the best value of PET is actually is when you have no defects on the rest or stress images by visual interpretation. And then when you look at the myocardial blood flow, the quantitative myocardial blood flow that is available on all PET cameras, then you can see a reduction in flow with stress uh, from rest. So let's say uh, usually the blood flow at rest is about one, and then you stress the patient. And if you're using a pharmacological stress testing, that in a young person, that should go up by three, four folds. But let's say uh, you have a middle-aged person that should go up at least by two folds, so anywhere between 1.8 to 2. So that's the ratio you're looking for. And if you see anything less than that, even in the face of normal scans and a normal cat, that's, an, that's evidence of microvascular disease. So that's where we are in that. So you always look for, for microvascular disease. Uh, this is a person, we don't expect to see large areas of perfusion defects with microvascular disease. It's usually more subtle than this. You start thinking about other things. If this person exercises on a treadmill, in this instance, you start saying, am I seeing here a myocardial bridge? Am I seeing an anomalous coronary artery that's being compressed that's not there? Am I dealing with vasospasm uh, that is not evident on the cardiac So these are the things beyond microvascular disease that you should put in mind. At least you should think about when you're facing a nuclear stress test. It's very abnormal, like described here and a, a cath that's uh, very normal.
0: So the, the other thing I think is, is um, that we're starting to understand a little bit better is that in the past we have this presence of obstructive epicardial disease, yes or no, and now the understanding of the disease process is a little bit better. And we know that, yes, we like to see that really discrete mid-LAD 80% stenosis causing this defect but we know from invasive studies that sometime those quote unquote non obstructive disease, diffuse non obstructive disease. Uh, when you have disease through the whole length of, of the vessel, uh, they can be uh, obstructive and, and can lead to uh, perfusion defect. So I think in those cases uh, in which uh, you see that and, and, and a cat comes back as non-obstructive disease, I think it's important to go back and see how the vessel looks. Is, is this a vessel that is diffusely diseased throughout? And, and, and that might be uh, one of the reasons and, and why this patient is having these. And often these three entities of very discrete epicardial uh, disease, diffuse disease, in, in, in microvascular or basal motor microcirculation dysfunction, they all mix together. So just when I make the comment that you don't need to necessarily to have that kind of severe disease to, in the epicardial vessel to actually cause uh, reversibility, that diffuse non-ischemic can do it too.
3: That's a great teaching point, Aldo. And before we keep going, I, I would also like to add something that Elheve taught me, and that is of the importance of looking at the stress exercise data. And we oftentimes jump into the, the imaging part of it, but the importance of looking at the amount of METs that the patient was able to exercise, what was the, what was the EKG response to exercise, those have sometimes an even more prognostic value than the actual images. So I don't know if Dr. Jaber can add something to that, but it's something that really stuck into my mind and something that I really pay attention to because of its very important prognostic value.
4: Again, you touched on a very important point, which again, historically. If you go back, why do we do stress testing? And if you're doing it, you're doing it for two reasons usually. One is to diagnose CAD and two, to prognosticate Now, if you're dealing with a patient with established CAD, you're doing it to guide therapy too. So you're doing it to prognosticate and guide therapy, meaning for guiding therapy, very often we have patients with very complex anatomy, prior vascularization, things like that. And you want to figure out where the ischemia is, what's causing what. So that's what it's used for. But as you said, Erica, the most important prognosticator is the presence of high mets on a treadmill. So a person who achieves uh, ten METs on the treadmill and has LAD ischemia, let's say this person we're dealing with here, is probably has much better prognosis than a person without ischemia, but can go only four METs on the treadmill, assuming everything else is is the same. So the, the number of METs achieved is extremely valuable and telling me how well this patient is going to do and guiding basically how I look at how to treat them. So this is extremely important. So we cannot look at these tests in a vacuum. The other thing is look at the images yourself. Learn how to see the images yourself. Question these things. Uh, Whatever test you order, especially during training and after training, you have to look at the images yourself. Don't rely on the report. You're not a reader only. You're an interpreter. Uh, So do that.
2: You know, I remember when life was simple and you had a patient with classic anginal complaints, you sent them for coronary angiography, and either you found disease, in which case you revascularized, or you didn't find disease and told them to look for a non-cardiac etiology. But now, you know, with Hefe raising the question, is this, is a functional test a false positive, or is the anatomic imaging a false negative? I'm just thinking how many patients were told to look for non-cardiac causes where the answer may have been within the invisible coronary microvasculature. And uh, also, conversely, I'm reminded of a patient who'd undergone a rest-stress PET imaging that showed normal perfusion with a EF in the mid-50s, both at rest and stress. But interestingly, in the same study, the patient had a transient ischemic dilatation and low coronary flow reserve with a global blood flow ratio of 0.88, which is, of course, markedly abnormal. Oddly enough, the patient's coronary angiography was negative for obstructive CAD. So in this case, why would this patient have had coronary microvascular disease? Interestingly, he was recently diagnosed with iga lambda al cardiac amyloidosis with both cardiac and renal involvement, and there are a variety of mechanisms by which you can get coronary microvascular disease and amyloidosis, for example, right, including structural changes to the microvasculature from infiltration and remodeling and fibrosis, from extravascular causes like extramural compression, and from functional causes like autonomic and endothelial dysfunction. It's very interesting and pet with myocardial blood flow, uh, super useful in that context. Finding microvascular disease is so important because, you, again, like we don't. Instead of telling them that they have to look for a non-cardiac etiology, coronary microvascular disease still implies an adverse prognosis. So we have to look for it. And although I'm wondering, what are some of the other non-invasive tools we can use to look for microvascular disease?
0: Yes, I mean, it, it, you know, uh, that's an important question that you bring. And, and before we get into that, it's important to recognize that this microcirculation is key in mediating all the adjustment of the coronary circulation as we go from resting to, to exercise. And, and, you know, when we talk about microvascular dysfunction, we're talking about changes in the structure, but also changes in the function. And unfortunately, uh, as of now, we don't have the technology to really look at. Uh, uh, those, uh, you know, vessels are really, really, really small. So we, we can only rely in function, and, and we can look at the function of these vessels through macular blood flow. It's important to recognize that, as you pointed out in your case, is that stress testing with or without imaging is neither sensitive or specific for myocardial disease. And we need to get to that absolute quantification of macular blood flow with non-invasive testing or with in- invasive techniques. So Having said that, I think the winner as of now is PET imaging. And Before I get into the other potential modalities, I think PET has the, the most robust and validated data behind not only the diagnosis, but also the prognosis of macular blood flow. Uh, having said that, there are other modalities that are getting or trying to replicate that. And I think from those, probably stress MR is one of the one that is getting there. You know, one of the issues with stress MR in the past was just how hard was to process and how lengthy the process was. But now new technology is, is now available. So you inject your gadolinium rest and stress and, and with different mathematical corrections, you can come up with what the marker blood flow is based on the gadolinium concentration. And, and now there, are, all this is happening at the scanner right after the image acquisition, make it really fast. And we can see, we do this a lot, and we, we can see that compared to the classical uh, supendocardial perfusion defect from coronary, sometimes this microvascular disease can be a little more patchy and mid and it usually comes along with people who have myocardial disease, uh, uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or you have hypertensive heart disease or amyloidosis as, as, as you're referring to your patient. So, so there's this kind of pattern that we're trying to figure it out if it can be enough to discriminate. And also, we are obtaining absolute flows. So, so you can come up with a similar approach that PET. There are some papers out there that are trying to use this flow in the presence or absence of uh, perfusion defect to try to come up with a, a diagnosis of, you know, microvascular versus uh, epicardial, assuming that there's no obstructive disease. And, and it's still in the works in there. So moving into Doppler echocardiography or stress echo, uh, one thing that we, you know, the community of echocardiography have done f- for a long time is just pulsing the mid to this LAD. So uh, usually this is done, done with a vasodilator. So you get your resting images, you, you put pulse wave Doppler, you measure the velocity at that particular area at the LAD because it's the one that is easy to access and imaging are a little bit better compared to the, you know, RCA and the circumflex. And you just measure your velocity uh, at rest and stress, and you get kind of a ratio uh, in what's the, the, the myocardial flow velocity reserve. And, and there's some uh, literature out there suggesting that this, this can be used to, one, prognosticate people with epicardial and see left main LAD, see if that's significant, but also has been linked with macrovascular dysfunction, but again, uh, not as robust aspect. Finally, I think is CardX-CT. When you acquire a ct you can acquire just a single picture in time, uh, or you can do a serial imaging as the contrast is traveling in a kind of a first pass perfusion like we do in MR, and through kind of calculation, you can, again, try to determine uh, what the macular blood flow is and, and try to kind of derive your blood flow and reserve in, a, in an attempt to get to the microvascular dysfunction questions. So, I think those are the other uh, alternatives that are, again, more investigational, less well-validated, and robust as PET. I think uh, PET would be the gold standard for this particular question. I just want to do a, little, a a brief mention about what are the options that we have from an invasive standpoint. And I think we're trying to assess all the coronary circulation. Uh, and you can put a catheter and, and, and similar to the echo measure velocities, and you can do intracoronary changes in velocity and do your kind of flow flow reserve. Uh, you can actually also measure pressure and, and how fast blood tr- uh, transit through the artery and come up with uh, resistance and come up with this index of uh, microvascular resistance, which is, again, another parameter that we use to assess the combination of epicardial and microvascular disease. And then, you know, are the more, the more known parameters of FFR and IFR that, again, they, these only assess for epicardial disease. So those are some of the more invasive parameters that we can do with
2: catheters. Aldo, thanks for that whirlwind tour of multimodality imaging for microvascular disease. And so if I understand it, whichever non-invasive modality we're using, whether it's PET, CMR, echo, CT, really what we're trying to get at is what is the adequacy of tissue level myocardial blood flow? And so if the myocardial blood flow is abnormal or inadequate, then that is reflective of the totality of the coronary tree, right? And so that doesn't tell you if it's an epicardial problem or a microvascular problem. But if you pair abnormal myocardial blood flow with an anatomical evaluation, either with a coronary CTA or a coronary angiography, and you don't see epicardial stenosis, in the context of abnormal microbial blood flow, that probably indicates microvascular disease, and then clinically, we've got to shift gears to managing those patients symptomatically, and then also from the preventive perspective. Is that uh, is that fair?
0: That's exactly right. I think to be able to diagnose uh, microvascular, you have I mean you have to exclude epicardial disease. And, and then you can do that non-invasively with a coronary CTA or, or invasively with, with a CAP. You have to establish that first. And then in the presence of a, a flow reserve that is impaired, then one of the differential there is microvascular dysfunction. So the other point that I want to bring, which is a little bit going back to, to PET, one way of, of looking at a microvascular dysfunction is you say, as you well said, if you have an impaired flow reserve, uh, Lesson two, that could be from epicardial or or all together. So, when we do PET, we acquire flow quantitation in there. So, when you do your polar plot, although the evidence for flow in PET is, is more about global, so with better spatial resolution, we're able to detect flow by segments. And one thing that some groups are doing out there is that they're trying to determine if there's a gradient between the base, basal segment of that particular coronary distribution to the distal segment. Let's say we're talking about the LAD, we can get the basal anterior to the most apical segment. And you try to determine if you have a gradient, what some people have called, quote-unquote, PET-FFR. Already from a non-invasive strategy with PET in a patient in which, let's say, there's no coronary calcification in a patient who has impaired flow reserve, that the flows at the base and the flows at the apex are reduced, but they're the same and you don't see a ratio or a, of less than a, a 0.8 uh, for FFR, you can potentially anticipate. And again, I'm not trying to say here that you can diagnose, but you can anticipate that patient might probably have more diffuse disease or microvascular rather than just a discrete stenosis in the epicardial vessel because you lack that gradient, which is the FFR. So those are the areas in which PET technology is evolving, and we will have to stay tuned to see that pans out to be the case. But I think it's, it's something that we always look, especially in these patients
2: with concern for microvascular. Wow, that, that is, you just blew my mind. That is so fascinating. So I'm just trying to picture in my mind. Say a patient has a 90% stenosis in the mid-LAD, the epicardial mid-LAD, the base of the heart, which may be supplied by a diagonal branch that already came up before that stenosis, potentially would have adequate flow. Whereas further down in the heart, the mid-segments, and certainly in the apex of the heart, you'd have a progressively decreasing flow reserve because you're downstream from that stenosis. However, if instead, a different patient has diffuse microvascular disease affecting all of the arterioles and capillaries, then it doesn't matter whether it's base or apex, and you wouldn't see that gradient. Really, what a brilliant way to use that construct mathematically and, and try to predict epicardial versus microvascular.
0: That's exactly right, Amit, that that you described it very well.
3: That is fascinating. And I, I have a question that I'm not sure has an answer, but when you talked about the polar plots and when we're doing regional myocardial flow reserve. You know, we cut the myocardium in, in these segments where we choose the LAD, the left circumflex and the RCA, but that's really made by us, right? We sort of choose and, and pick the region, but I would imagine that in, in reality, it's not as simple as just like a puzzle that you just break into the LAD, the circumflex and the RCA because there's so many different anatomic variations in terms of codominance or dominance. Has that been ever studied or is that validated in any way?
0: No, I think that those are, are efforts that are ongoing to try to validate this. I think it makes sense from a pathophysiological standpoint. But going back to your your initial question, I think it all depends on your reconstruction. Then you have to be very careful when you reconstruct and post-process your images. So a way that you, you're you trying to, the area that is coming as the anterior or basal anterior is going to reflect more or less, the mid and, and, and basal anterior. So, so you have to be a little extra careful with your reconstructions. But again, this is very at the beginning, and we'll have to see if this pans out to be a, an accurate way of predicting that or not.
4: That's why, like, when we talk about this, um, especially myocardial blood flow and absolute quantification, the current 2020 understanding, at least for PET, is use the total for the heart rather than the segmental. A lot of data are being built up about the segmental part, which will include whether it's LAD, RCA, CERC. The system right now, the system, most systems you have will give you that. will give you that output as far as segmental. But I think the most important thing in these patients when you're suspecting microvascular disease is the the global blood flow and blood flow ratios. So one important thing, as you saw from this discussion, is we have technologies that are proven. And uh, the, basically, the winner here will probably be PET. And I'm biased because this is a nuclear session for uh, cardio nerds So you have a PET as a very highly sensitive technology for detection of CAD uh, in the high 90s. It's a very specific, so it very rarely ever leads to false positives. Standardized, easy to read, uh, has a component uh, that is evolving and well understood now even of quantification, absolute quantification, linked to prognostication for patients' outcomes. Uh, Most of the nuclear outcomes from nuclear cardiology committee in the past at least 10 years came from PET rather than SPECT. Yet we have slow adaptation of these technologies. If you walk into any cardiac cath lab, uh, you will find that most of the systems are, you know, within the past five to 10 years, most times two, three years. Uh, similarly, if you walk into an echo lab you find the machines are all, they can perform all the functions you want to perform. And they move to a lease structure where you can get the new echo machines almost every three to four years, which have all the bells and whistles of tissue Doppler, strain imaging, automated border detection, all these other things. Whereas if you look, work, walk into a nuclear lab in the U.S. right now, the average age of a spec camera is, I would just want to venture and say it's probably more than 15 years to 20 years old. Uh, we have not the penetration we talked about of CT imaging or CT attenuation correction. Uh, according to the data we have, we just published an editorial about that with one of the fellows, Is about 5%. So 5% of the systems in the US have CT and that's not going to change. Uh, so it's very uh, puzzling to try to understand why we haven't Moved with the times as far as the nuclear imaging community. And you, as a young generation listening to this, should be the the workhorse of actually transitioning us to the hopeful future and better future of PET imaging.
2: Well, thanks, everyone. That was a fabulous discussion on an approach to coronary microvascular disease. And I certainly have a better understanding of the next steps for Antinuous.
1: That was such a great discussion about multimodality imaging to investigate for coronary microvascular disease. Be sure to stay tuned for the next episode in the series as we get the results back for Euromychus and learn about myocardial viability testing.
2: Hefe, is, he's such an advocate for the program. He he shows up and uh, speaks to them. And I remember one of them, Arsalan, who, who matched here, gave me a call and he's like, Man, who's who's this Doctor Chamber guy? He's he's like the Renaissance man. He can talk about anything, and I was like, "Yep, that's uh, that's That's uh, that's who he Most is." <laughs> guys, yeah, Christ, <laughs> that's exactly
4: right.